Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Angie Elita Newell, the Indigenous author of a new book, All I See is Violence. Angie belongs to the Lidi Kui First Nation from the Deco in Canada. She is an Indigenous historian who desires to share the stories that we might all become better informed and want to make the world a better place. Angie joins us to give us this behind-the-scenes understanding of her first published book. Angie Alita Newell, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, I am very excited that we have this opportunity to have a conversation. And also, um, it's it's emotional. This book, All I See is Violence, uh, is, is really amazing with the stories that you tell. And, um, and if we really, I feel if we really let this book uh, live with us, register with us, it, it is emotional and it really stirs up things that are important for us to have stirred up and to do something about. Am I on the right track with that, Angie? That's exactly the right track. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so for that, uh, I am grateful because, goodness, this is just such a uh, really profound book. And and so I'm led to wonder what stirred within you that you needed to write this book? Oh, well, it's not the first novel I've written. It's just the first one that was, you know, good enough. Well, not good enough, but able to get published, we'll say. <laughs> and you're not alone with that, I think. You know, many authors do <laughs> say that. That's a pretty common experience as a writer, I'm discovering pretty quick. Right. So um, I was really inspired by World War One poetry. And so these individuals went through, you know, absolute despair. And as an Indigenous person, we do have a lot of, you know, remnants of colonialism. And I was like, well, how do I'm trained as a historian? I was like, how do I share this in sort of a more engaging way? Because this, this isn't just indigenous history. This is everybody's history in North America. Like this is a shared experience. And there seems to be sort of, you know, like a boundary there where we don't really discuss it. And I think, you know, we're in the 21st century and it's time to discuss it. <laughs> yes. Yes. And then my children are also half white. And so my husband's family originated from England, came through Cleveland, Ohio. So like you don't get any more Caucasian than that. <laughs> so it's like, how do I explain this to them? Because, you know, they have both sides of the spectrum. And you can see like as you get older and the more life experience you have, like you understand what my indigenous ancestors taught. We're all one energy. So how do we share that energy? Like this was a really traumatic past and we need to sort of shed some light on it and give it remembrance and then move forward in a place of this universal love and oneness. Oh, that is the essential core that holds true for any and all stories. So yes, thank you for really bringing us to that place of saying that that's what happens here. And then you do this in a, a really amazing way to focus on essentially three major characters weaving these stories over time, over century. 
Yeah, <laughs> that was a little bit complicated. You know what I was really inspired by was the children's movie, The Never Ending Story. <laughs> and you know, when they have like the little boy with the grandpa and the grandpa starts telling him the story like that's where that's where that idea was sort of seated. Like it's so amazing as a human, like things that kind of catch your eye and resonate with you. Like we were discussing earlier for you, it was the Polar Express. Like it's so strange, like some things just click and you're like, oh, like it just like goes into your subconscious and as a artist my subconscious is like oh we're going to use that later <laughs> right and that really is a very interesting thing then to weave in with finding that at the core at essence we are all one we're all connected then to use that and weaving it back and forth over a century and the various stories, well, not just a century, over several centuries, right? Then it really brings that even more strongly together. I felt the same way. It gave it more like resonance. And I wanted to illustrate like the problems a couple hundred years ago as Indigenous people today, we're still dealing with them. Like, we need to, like, put this to rest. (laughs) We all need to just move forward. We need to resolve these issues and just continue. You can't resolve them unless people know they actually exist, right? They can't, you have to, like, bring them to the forefront. And again, I was like, how do I do this in an engaging, exciting way (laughs) that makes it available to everyone? It's not like just, like, you know, something for academics. Um, I come from an academic background. And the higher you go, like the smaller the classes get, right? You start in these big lecture halls with like 300 people. And like the more years you do, all of a sudden you're in a room with like five people. So if only five people are hearing these stories, like we're not going to get very far. Right. And to make it historical fiction really then allows it to get into the hands of multitudes. Oh, yeah, definitely. And so I was another inspiration of mine was Little House on the Prairie. I love those books as a child like that. Like I I still read them (laughs) every once in a while. I'm having a bad day. You know, I'm like, I'm going to have to go to Laura Ingall Wilder's life. Like I need to just like experience. So as a historian, there's moments like that, you know, where you're just sort of like drawn. I think historians are drawn to certain points in history. And I really like that 19th century. That really interests me because we sort of have the dawn of modernity, like we have this like shift into the industrial revolution. And that's sort of what we're dealing with right now, right? We're, we're shifting to like this technocratic revolution. So you can kind of see there's historical parallels going on. Yes. And in this book, you touch on that in a really subtle, maybe not so subtle and significant ways. Like, as you said, that reminded me of a, a page, a comment. I thought this was actually because we have General Custer, who is obviously a significant figure in history, figures very prominently here in this book, All I See is Violence. But uh, I really thought it amazing when you use um, the sentence, he's looking around at the city around him and he's saying, that's what our politics had been reduced to, swallowed up by the emerging industries, something that I could already see posed greater threat than the Indians. And I just thought in just those words, two lines, you say so much about what was going on, what was being created, you know, all the wounding and all the death that suffered and for what. And here we are again. So, yes, I guess this is a time of having to come to a reckoning. I mean, finally, because if we don't, the future doesn't look so good. 
yeah, we'll just keep on repeating these same patterns. Like Custer was a really fascinating character. Like he had profound respect for the indigenous Americans. You know, people like to kind of paint him black and white. But when I started going through his actual memoirs, I'm like, whoa, this is a gray figure. <laughs> and he's really pushing against, like he's not feeling the change that was going on in the United States at that point. He was sort of a romantic guy and he died at, I think like 36. So he's not very old. So he's looking back and he fought through the Civil War and he was an amazing warrior, General Custer, like extraordinary. Like if you sent him in, like it was a guaranteed win. So they went into these Indian wars really confident with Custer at the helm. And he actually wasn't a general. He was a lieutenant colonel. You know, he got a title above what he was actually had and everyone referred to him as general. So, I mean, that's interesting in and of itself. Like there's a profound respect for him. And it was interesting to learn that because I know very little of that history. Growing up Canadian, we didn't necessarily touch on this kind of American history. Because I'm Canadian as well. You kind of come in it with a more objective, you know, you don't really have an opinion either way because I knew like nothing of them. <laughs> so I just kind of stumbled across them over like a series of like three years. Like th this individual kept on popping up. Like I was one time at a Musqueam feast and there was an elder next to me and he just looked at me and I looked at him and I had made an apple crumble, which was a huge hit. And he was like, did you know that they were women warriors? And I had never come across that in my historical training. I had never found that in my archival research. And I was like, what? No, I did not know that. Like, and, and he wouldn't tell me anymore. That was just it. So I started researching that. And that's what actually led me to General Custer. Because when you have the Lakota Sioux, well, a good portion of the women, warriors who they're fighting were women. And so, you know, I found this with the Kamachi and a little bit with the Apache as well. So there's a strong presence of females, you know, on the field. And they, they couldn't really tell the difference with the indigenous people between male and female, because once they, you know, had all the regalia on their hair, everyone had long hair, everyone had feathers in their hair and face paint and body paint, like they all kind of looked the same. And that's why it wouldn't be noted. But I guess in that sense, it really makes sense that if that was the gift or the talent that a person, a woman had, that that is then the role she would fulfill. Oh, definitely. And so these people, you know, the indigenous warriors, they were trained from children. So they were kind of picked out for, you know, whatever strength they had. And so these were very furious opponents in the field. And Custer knew that and respected that. And the, when I started researching the women, like I discovered like they fought differently, obviously, because there's a discrepancy in size and strength. So they could shoot a gun from like really far back because they're not going to want to get as close in pitch battle. Mm hmm. And that was fascinating to have that as one of the key stories too. the female warrior who seemed what I felt. I looked at her as being a tiny person that she was not, <laughs> you know, necessarily an Amazonian woman. No, I felt like she was petite as well. <laughs> I have my youngest daughter's age and she's very little for her age, but she's very, very feisty. Like big things come in small packages, I've learned. <laughs> so look at how the story weaves. You take today, you look in history, you talk with people and different things pop up. You watch this movie and it gives you ideas. It's like a tapestry all of our life if we just look at these things and you're showing that to us. I I, mean, I think the world's such an amazing place, despite like, you know, all the traumatic things that can happen. Like there's so much beauty here. Like it's just you can't take it for granted. Like we're not here forever. 
Right. Exactly. And so doesn't that then pose the question, what was happening here with the wars over this country? But we see it perpetuated around the the globe, all the wars that we're seeing now, all the death everywhere. Isn't it just something that is mind-boggling, mind-numbing that we keep doing this? Yeah, it, it actually does blow my mind, particularly I, you know, I'm trained as a historian. I specialize in like colonialism because that's a really traumatic part. And you're sort of watching the same thing happen again on a global stage with with similar characters. Right? We got we got similar actors involved. So, you know, you would think that you could look back at all these really horrific events, even including World War One and World War Two, and you think that our governing bodies would be more inclined to talk about things than to go right into it because we now know the consequences like they're pretty well known the horrors that come out of these situations yes exactly and maybe i think that's the opportunity we have here with all i see is violence it's very significant because if we look around our world it holds true there as well. But it's, of course, this is the book and it's significant to you as to present it in this way, right? Yeah, it, it goes back to the same thing. Like we're sort of, you know, in history, they they teach you there's like four turnings and there's sort of like, you know, four stages that we go through over and over again. So we're at like the fourth stage. And so this is like, this was similar, you know, what's going on with custard at this time in um, 1876 this is similar to what was going on during world war ii and now we're in the fourth turning again like if you look at the actual dates we're actually in like the fourth turning and so like what comes after this everyone's going to be like oh that was really horrible let's not do that again let's work towards peace and so hopefully we get there sooner than later (laughs) right so how do we do that finally because we keep saying we can't reenact we can't go through that again and yet we find ourselves repeating that past history, maybe even on a more atrocious level. How do we stop it? I think it's just more awareness from everyone. Like people are more conscious of their thoughts and their actions and, you know, coming together. And like, like what I I mentioned previously, like my ancestors taught indigenous people a universal oneness. Like we weren't just connected to each other, but different, every living creature thing like rocks. So with the CU, where this big fight comes with the U.S. government, what I've written about is the Black Hills. So Custer finds gold. He leads an expedition, you know, I think close to 10 years before the battle of Little Bighorn into the Black Hills and they they find gold. But these Black Hills are sacred to the Lakota Sea. You know, this is where they can reach God. It's, you know, like a medicine chest. This is where, you know, you refill spiritually. This is where you gather herbs and different tinctures. And so they had negotiated to keep the Black Hills in the Fort Laramie Treaty. And then they find gold. And now the U.S. government's like, oh, shit. (laughs) Like, like we need those hills. And so they try to get at it diplomatically. And it, it was really fascinating for me as well when I was going through Custer's memoirs. He laments a lot about these squawmen. So what squawmen were, it was white Americans that had married indigenous women. And so when the treaty making processes came up in the 19th century, these white men were like, do not sign that. Like, this isn't for your best interests in mind. And so it demonstrated there wasn't these like, when you start actually looking into it, like race, like as an idea doesn't exist yet. And so the we were matrilineal indigenous people of North America. So if an indigenous woman married a white man, he would move into her community and be considered whatever nation she was a part of. And then they would have had interracial children. 
So when you start looking at the ethnographic pictures, you can tell like they're clearly mixed race. <laughs> you know, I'm talking blonde hair, blue eyed Indians. <laughs> and so I wanted to touch on that as well in my novel because they're sort of written out of history. Like we're given sort of a political identity, which is like long, dark hair and dark eyes. But you can see by the 19th century, we have a couple hundred years of interracial mixing, not just with white Americans, but black Americans as well. And there's a whole gamut of appearances and they've adapted a lot of uh, Western style clothing as well so they're trying to get out of this treaty the white indians are like do not get like do not give up this land and so what happens they're like okay if you're not going to get off it we're just taking it so when i started looking into the treaty making process with uh, american indians and the u.s government i thought like oh, okay they broke this fort laramie treaty and the resulting action is the atrocity of little bighorn but i mean what, what about all these other treaties and the u.s government has broken every single treaty with the american indians every single one there's not a single treaty that has been broken in the past whatever that is like 300 200 years like that's to me that was shocking yeah. <laughs> and again like coming at it as a canadian you're just like what <laughs> what is going on here but in canada there are treaties with the indigenous people and they've been broken too i would imagine for sure oh right? yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah that's like canada's not as big you know we don't have as many people we don't have as many indians so like it's not and so the same thing in the United States, like every single indigenous group appears to have been forcibly relocated. Like I, I mentioned, I'm originally from the Northwest Territories and we're the Dene. And when I started looking into it, we're actually the only group that that never was forcibly relocated. And I'm going to say the weather was on our side. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who don't know, like minus 50 is normal. <laughs> so I'm sure they took a look at that and were like, you know what, you can keep it. <laughs> <laughs> there can't be anything of value there. We'll, we'll just leave no, them no, alone. No, 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 it's yours. Oh, <laughs> that, just knowing that and its history, again, is just gut-wrenching to think of all the deceit and the greed. Greed's a big, you know, hot button for me now. But, you know, if we look back at history, that greed has been ever-present. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so, like, when, you know, writing this book, I kind of wanted to take the reader on a journey through that. Like, what does that feel like? And, like, you know, it's heartbreaking. Yes, it is <laughs> utterly heartbreaking. And, and the reason that this is really such an important work for our time, this book, All I See is Violence. Again, historical fiction. So I think it makes it in that way, the stories uh, make it easier for us to fall into. We might not pick up a history book that might feel too heavy. But here we get the history couched in the stories of the people, which it's very natural. I guess you, you take poetic license, right, to a degree. But definitely, right, but yeah. like all my facts are actual facts. And yeah. I had another historian go through and like, you know, fact check me yeah. <laughs> to make sure everything was accurate. Because I did want, you know, again, like I'm inspired by television. Like when my kids were a little bit younger, I used to put on the History Channel a lot. And like some of those programs are just amazing. You get sucked into things you never think you get sucked into. <laughs> totally agree. So I just wanted to make it engaging. You yes. know what I mean? How do we approach this sort of, you know, this is an important historical knowledge. How do we approach this in a way that, you know, a younger person who has no interest in becoming a historian or an older person who already kind of knows this, how do you like present it in a way that's new? Right. 
And if it is new to someone who has no knowledge, I found myself Googling. Of course, we turned to Google. (laughs) But checking on things to say, well, what were some of the other things there? So I think it it has that ability to pull us in and want us to learn more. And I mean, isn't that the idea here, to learn more and to then become informed enough to want to make positive changes in our world? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. (laughs) That's amazing. You understood me. I could be a hard person to understand. (laughs) Well, (laughs) maybe if we're, you know, for any of us who are really desiring this in our lifetime and to, you know, to see the past and and know that this needs to change. So it, then we can resonate on that same, same level and understand. <laughs> same frequency. Yeah, same frequency. Exactly. So that being the case and this being this um, season of gifting and giving and and such, this, even though the book is coming out in January, we can order it an advance order and let someone know I've got a special gift coming from you. So, you know, the holiday season's going to actually carry on and make it even that much more festive in a way. I agree with that. And it's a good way to celebrate the new year. You know, a lot of people have new year's resolutions and, you know, maybe expanding your, you know, your historical knowledge could be one of them. Yes, absolutely. And, and in, in expanding that, you know, thinking about how can I then realize that I am also an instrument of change, you know, become that much more aware so I can do something somewhat differently to, to make this world a better place. Yeah. It could be even just simple as, you know, just being, you know, full of gratitude and kindness. Like I talk to everybody, everyone knows who I am. And so, you know, at the grocery store, I know all the cashiers and I can just tell like it drives people nuts because I'll stand there and I'll have a conversation with them. (laughs) You know, people are in a rush. They got to go. I'm like, no, no, no. This is a human being. Like we got some things to talk about. I got to see how their week's going. (laughs) (laughs) And and that is, you know, really that's a priceless gift to recognize a person as a human being and, you know, what that does for them, but it does for us too, as we, you know, that recognition, that understanding understanding that connection oh ultimately you know despite all these horrific events like I believe in humanity and I believe in you know taking delight in you know life and we certainly see that coming through also in all I see is violence in this new book of yours Angie so people can as we mentioned as a uh, pre-order it so how do we go about doing that it's on Amazon, but it's also on the other big American bookstores like Barnes and Nobles. <laughs> and and actually, I, I was at your website, and there there's an opportunity to pre-order as well, correct? The website uh, is, yeah, I, is I think, growing. I think it's just like links on there to where you oh, can go to pre-order it. Okay. So it's the links. I'm not to- set up as an online distributor. All that, that would be pretty fun. Like I, w- I could get into like making t-shirts and stuff for the book because the cover is pretty amazing me and Neil really connected on that and right now I'm working with an animator in LA and we're looking at animating the cover <gasps> like doing like and that that's been really fun <laughs> oh and there could be a, a a series of uh of stories that that come through from this right yeah you definitely yeah. could yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh Do like a series of like one to two minute like shorts like indigenous like oral tales like yes. I was mentioning I have all sorts of 
stories I've told my children that would be suitable to put on social media (laughs) and everyone to enjoy. (laughs) So to that end, being this is a a holiday season and you're telling stories to your daughters, is there one that we could uh, share with the audience? We could, but it it gets a little bit into the esoteric. So I started um, researching, like I want to say 18 months ago, Indigenous creation stories, because despite all the differences in our nations across North America, we all have one sort of commonality. And if you start looking at it from an academic viewpoint, it kind of looks like we come from like another planet. We've been star seeded here. And so I got really into, I mentioned the history channel and there's a program called ancient aliens and they kind of go into this as well, but not with indigenous creation stories, but like all around the world. And so you kind of like open up your mind to that. And I was introduced to the work of Artie six killer Clark, Artie Clark, six killer. I think it's Artie. Anyway, she was a professor at Montana state university, a historian as well. And she came to the same conclusion, but she started traveling all across the United States and getting firsthand evidence from elders. And then when she was there, people kept on coming up to her with different alien encounters. (laughs) So she's got a whole body of work I've gone through and they're just amazing stories. So I was inspired by that. So it might not be what you were expecting because where I'm from in the Northwest Territories, apparently we were brought here by a being called Umaria. And Umaria gave us fire. And so we came here at a point where, you know, the salmon were as big as orcas. And it's clearly like there's woolly mammoths. So we come here essentially in like the prehistoric period. And so how do you survive in that sort of environment, right? Or you've been like star seated here from like a planet that's warm. And now you're here in the frozen Northwest Territory. So this being gave us all this different technology and how we did survive when I started interviewing elders of my own from the Dene Nation is it would appear as though remote viewing. So if if you don't know what that is, that means like you can leave your body and you can look somewhere else. And that's how they would find the caribou herds to survive. And so you would, whoever would kind of, you know, like picking warriors, like these skills would sort of be demonstrated in their childhood and then these skills would be worked. And so they had like different games where, you know, they would have like the child guess, like what card, like what number, because they had these like sets of cards that we make. And if you've ever seen the Dene written language, like it's crazy. <laughs> like we're directly related to the Navajo and those are the wind talkers because like no one can crack that. Like it's so difficult to speak. It's so difficult to write. And we did have written language that so we had like written alphabet that looked like petroglyphs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now we're kind of getting into this like weird hybrid. Anyways, they would develop remote viewing. And like, it was really interesting because I'm working on a book on Geronimo and he worked like highly um, interconnected with the medicine woman, Lozen, who's sort of been written out of history again. She was a female warrior and Lozen could remote view as well. And so this is how they evade the United States army for 30 years is that Lozen can close her eyes and she does like this prayer and then she knows exactly where they are. So, you know, I kind of go into that and all I see is violence as well. This like sort of supernatural, you know, surrealism, which seems very real. And it was really fascinating for me when you start sort of bringing these stories up with people. One, I had other people tell me of alien, you know, spottings and encounters. And then I was talking with different pastors and ministers because I was uh, looking into residential schools in Canada, which is, you know, very, very tragic. And my mother was forced into a residential school. So that's a pretty big part of my history. And we're talking about the mass graves because like, they were like, oh, there's these mass graves and no, 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 
there's no mass graves. And so I started talking to the different pastors and ministers and they were like, oh no, there's mass graves. But they also had supernatural stories that they had to tell me. And these were, you know, white men who were of the Christian faith. And, you know, they talked about removing demons and different times when like some force had like prevented them from being in danger. Like, so I think like, when I do tell these stories, some people aren't willing to hear them, but the more you say like one sentence like that, and like, you know, I would say more than 50% of the time, someone has a supernatural story to share with me. Amazing. Wow. (laughs) That is just such a wealth of information and so much for us really to consider. I feel that there's so much more that we could discuss. And yet for this segment, you know, (laughs) we've run out of time. So I almost feel like we have to get together again and have another conversation. I would absolutely love to. I'll I'll have a story prepared, like an Angie original. I'll get it. I'll write it out and I'll I'll time it so we don't eat up too much time with it. Because like once I get going, like they hit like these stories that I tell my children, which they love, like on average, they go about an hour. Oh, (laughs) oh my goodness. Yes. Well, maybe we could go a half hour. (laughs) I'll try to do like the trailer version where I can get it into like five minutes. I'll go through and I'll get the most important points and try not to go off track. You'll have to keep me on track. Okay. Deal. Well, then that's a date that we will set. And in the meantime, though, for this season and because All I See Is Violence is going to be out in January, we can order that pre-copy. As I said, I think this is a great way to create a little note to someone special and say, I've got a special gift coming for you. It'll be here next month to, you know, expand the season. And to do that, go to any of your favorite book sources, even your own small bookstore uh, in your city. And and request it. And that's All I See is Violence by Angie Elita Newell. And Angie, I really appreciate who you are, what you're doing, this book, and of course, your time with us this morning. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I loved it. <laughs> Likewise. Me too. That brings us to the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Angie Newell and Sunday Morning Magazine with Peter Matisse. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, kated at warm1069.com, and I will get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, find the podcast on our Warm 1069 webpage. Just click on the Listen tab, then Podcasts, followed by either of the show names, and then look for the guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of celebrating a lovely holiday and consider the gift of who we truly are. Have a week of the same, and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9. Good morning.